Good morning, guys. So good to see you today. Glad you're able to make it. Kitchen staff, thank you so much for providing us breakfast this morning. And guys, it's so good to be here with you and all these new faces. It's such a great joy to see us all here this morning. And um, it's, it's a great privilege for me as we dive back into this study. Scripture's vision for biblical manhood, what it means to be a man after God's own heart. We've been talking about that for the past four weeks. If you've missed it, they're online. Uh, go back and listen to them. Um, but because this is our great mission, right, to figure out what it means to be a man, after not just any man, but a man after God's own heart, we're not paying attention much to what culture says about manhood because, as you know, culture uh, changes. It's a moving target. Whatever culture says it means to be a man right now, it's going to be different 10 years later. And so what we're trying to do is to drill down on what our eternal, unchanging God says about being a man, what his design is, what are those essentials, those postures, and those practices and disciplines of being a man after his own heart. Uh, last week, Todd talked on humility, which he described as being the core of a biblical man, of being a man after God's own heart. Uh, today, we're going to talk about something similar, but that's equally as difficult for sinful men like us to come to grips with, and that is our dependence upon God in everything and for everything. In fact, it's because of our lack of humility that we find it so difficult to be dependent upon God. But as we look at the story of Naaman, we'll see that if we truly are going to be men after God's own heart, we must be growing in our awareness and practice of depending upon God. So 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were the, with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, the king, Thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, which is a lot of money, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you might cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he might know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. 
But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that this prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimen and worship there, leaning on my own arm. I bow myself in the house of Rimen. When I bow myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for each of these men. And Father, I'm so grateful that you give us this time every week to come together as brothers limping in desperate need of your grace. So Father, would you quiet our hearts and our souls? As John prayed, would you help us not simply to be informed, but transformed, able to apply your life-giving word in our lives for our good and your glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My son is of the um, often funny, but always frustrating age of right now of where he is most definitely dependent upon mom and dad for everything. He's four and a half years old. But he's under the illusion that he is the one in control. And it's hilarious and also very, very frustrating. Apparently he knows as a four and a half year old of when he's supposed to go to sleep and when he's supposed to awake. Jumps in our bed at 4 a.m. ready to go. He knows what he is supposed to eat for dinner. It is never healthy. He knows when he should go to school and when he shouldn't go to school. He wants to do everything by himself, which usually makes a bigger mess than it was before he started. And even when I try to help him, he just gives me this glare as if he's saying, leave me alone, old man. I got this as a four and a half year old, which is hilarious because every morning he still cries out for me to wipe him when he's done using the restroom, right? He doesn't see the irony. I'm the one in control, but dad, would you please help me with this? He's under the, he's under the illusion of control, my four-and-a-half-year-old. I've been thinking about this topic, dependence. And I think we're the same way. As men, we know that we are 100% dependent upon God for absolutely everything. But functionally, we often live as if we are the ones in control. That we have this, that we got it. And when things get beyond our control, we often try to grab for more control usually making the problem worse than it was before it started. Does anybody else struggle with that? Am I the only one? Please, please, Lord, let me not be the only one. I don't know why we struggle with that. It could be a variety of reasons. It could be as simple that, you know, being dependent upon anybody doesn't seem to have much dignity to it. When's the last time you heard dependency as a superlative? It's never a superlative. It's always to describe a child or some incompetent man. So maybe that's it. Maybe we just don't want to be dependent upon anything because it just feels undignified. Perhaps we grew up in a family with parents who were not as attentive or present as they should have been and we had to care for ourselves, which I know some of you had to do. 
and therefore it's easy for us to feel like we have to be in control because no one else is. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's because of all the monetary blessings that we have in our life. We've been blinded to the reality that we truly are dependent upon God. And I bet a lot of us struggle with that. Or maybe it's simply just because culture tells us that as men, that we have to be at the top of the heap. We got to be in control. We got to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We got to have everything together. I don't know why we struggle with it, but I do know two things. One, we all struggle with the idol of control from one degree to another. And we have since our first parent, Adam. Adam, in his first sin, in his pride, he sought to move out from under God's design to become independent from God. And we've all been trying to do that ever since as those who are in Adam. In fact, Tim Keller, and Tim Keller was very helpful on this topic with me and his treatment of it. But Tim Keller says it's one of our most common and dangerous idols, this idol of control. Personal success, achievement, and control leads to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and value rest in our own wisdom, in our own strength, and in our own performance. To be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means that no one else is like you, that you are supreme, and as those in Adam, we crave that. So from one degree to another, we all struggle with this. And here's another thing I know. Because of that, from one degree to another, All of us struggle with fear, and all of us struggle with worry. All of us struggle with anger when things are not in our control, and we struggle with insecurity. And I know that because those things are the natural byproduct of thinking yourselves bigger and more capable than God. We were not designed to be in control of anything. John Stott says we're designed to be dependent upon God in everything and for everything. And when we're like Adam, trying to become independent from God, well, those things are the natural byproducts. Fear and anger and insecurity and worry. The idol of control is an illusion. We're not in control of anything. It's an illusion. But it's an illusion, brothers, that is dangerous to our souls. And if we're going to be men who are growing and and following after God, being described as men after his own heart, we have to be a men that are growing in our awareness and practice of depending upon God for everything and in everything. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Naaman. He was a man that was nearly destroyed by his idol of control. But by God's grace, he became aware of the true reality that he was dependent upon God. And by embracing it, he experienced immense blessing in his life. Now, this story is primarily one of conversion. This is what happens in his life. He's converted, and hopefully that will be encouraging to us. But brothers, there is so much that we can learn in this passage in his life, not only about conversion, but also about this idol that we all struggle with one way or another, and also what it means to grow in our dependence of God. Hopefully we'll end a little bit early today so you can have some of those discussion questions around your table, because I know that we love that. So first things first, looking at verse one, the first thing that I want us to see is the illusion of control. We see this right from the very get-go. The author, you'll notice in verse one, he just starts piling up the accolades. All right, and he starts giving us these descriptions that would have us know that Naaman, our boy Naaman, was enjoying the blessed life. And he was, he was enjoying the good life. This guy was the second most powerful person in the world. Not in his hunt club or in his city, 
in the world, okay? He is that important. He was that powerful. He was hobnobbing with the most powerful king of the time, the king of Syria. He was the leader of the entire army of Syria. He was highly decorated, highly accomplished, rich beyond measure. He was successful, this guy. Now, we know there's nothing wrong with being successful. Many of us in this room are successful in our given fields. That is a blessing from God. Give him thanks for it. But brothers, we have to understand that riches and accolades and success in this life can be dangerous to our souls. This is what we learned from our study in Matthew in chapter 19 when Jesus confronted that rich young man, that devastating story. Here's this rich young man that was actually attracted to Jesus. He liked what Jesus was saying. But what happened? His success prevented him from entering into the kingdom of God because it gave him the illusion that he did not need God, that he wasn't desperate for God. And that's the danger, that our worldly riches often can blind us to our spiritual poverty, to our desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes us feel like we are on top of our game, like we do have everything together, right? And what's worse is our culture tries to make us to believe that. For crying out loud, Steve Jobs, you might remember this, it's an old illustration, but when he made the iPhone, he said that his wish was for his customers when they picked up that iPhone and had all the information in the world available at their fingertips that they themselves would feel like God. That's what he said. That they might feel omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. That every little customer, every little 10-year-old or however old people are now when they get an iPhone, I don't know, that they would feel like God. And for the most part, that has worked. But that's where Naaman was. He was under the illusion that he didn't need God because, well, he was God. He was in control of everything that he needed to be in control of. So if we stop right now or later today, ask yourself the question, ask the people at the table this question, what are those things in our life as men that we've allowed to delude ourselves in thinking that exact same thing? We've got to figure out what those things are that are blinding us to our dependency on the Lord Jesus Christ. So from the very get-go, this author wants us to understand that this man was under the illusion that he was in control of things and it was dangerous for him. But that's not the only thing we see in verse 1. In verse 1, we also see God's amazing grace put on display. Now this is how we see that. After this author gives us this list of accolades, he turns into kind of a Debbie Downer, right? He says, you know, yeah, he was living the good life, but in spite of all of that, Naaman was a dead man walking. He was a leper, which meant his life was slowly deteriorating. Eventually, his skin would boil, it would begin to fall off, and he would die a slow and miserable death. Now, if you were to hear that, the horrible news from your doctor, hey, bub, this is going to happen to you, that would be awful. But nevertheless, in that that death sentence that he received, that, hey, you have leprosy. In that verdict, we see God's grace. Now we ask, how do we see God's grace in the news? Hey, you are a leper. This is how. God, in his severe mercy, I've talked about that before. I'm fascinated with it because I've experienced it, and it's hard, but I'm so thankful for it. God, in his severe mercy, intervened into Naaman's life to strip him from the idol that wasn't only killing his body, but more importantly, was killing his soul. 
He was so firmly entrenched with this idea that he had everything in control, that his life was put together. God did everything to bring him to the point of understanding that that was an illusion. Now we're going to see there's still some more work to be done, but i got to believe in that moment when he heard that he was a leper, he began to see the cracks in the facade that he did not need God. Right? Because in spite of all of his wealth, in spite of all the people that he knew, in spite of his power, he was going to die, and he knew that he was powerless to do anything about it. Whatever this culture tells us that we ought to boast in as men, our bank accounts, the people that we know, whatever else, brothers, it is fool's gold. As Todd said last week, it is baseless pride. It is vanity. The only thing that we ought to boast in is Christ crucified and Christ resurrected because everything that this world says that we got to do or have in order to be fulfilled, satisfied, and saved cannot keep you out of the grave. It's vanity. And I got to believe in that moment that Naaman began to understand that. That all the things that he was putting his significance in and hope in was crumbling before him. I remember often Sandy describing severe mercy. Uh, Sandy Wilson had this line that says, God loves us so much that he's willing to kill our bodies in order to save our souls. And that's true. In order to destroy us, in order to redeem us, in order to break us down so that we might start depending upon God. And we see this throughout the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses tells us, uses the words, God humbled Israel in the wilderness so that they might learn to what? To depend on him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul told the Corinthian church that the reason for their affliction was to make them rely not on themselves, but on God. God in his grace loves us so much, he breaks us down in order to build us up. And he builds us up by opening our eyes to the fact that we are dependent upon him on all things and in everything. And he wants us to know that because as Ecclesiastes says, to live a meaningful life, an abundant life, is unattainable without God. And so verse 1, we see the illusion of control, the danger of that idol, but we also see God's amazing grace. Remember, this guy, we're believers. This guy was a pagan didn't know God. God and his love intervenes into his life, how much more so his chosen people. Next thing I want us to see is the function of control. In verses 2 through 7, before Naaman is ultimately freed from this monster, we see how this uh, idol functioned in his life. Um, you'll notice, in, starting in verse 2, after God, yet again in grace, this is a measure of God's grace, that he put a slave girl in Naaman's life. All right, this slave girl, by the way, was stolen by Naaman from Israel. But nevertheless, this faithful girl God put in his life so that she might light the way to the road of salvation, pointing him to Elisha. (laughs) He never would have known about this had God not put this girl in his life. But before he receives this, he still acts out in his idol. He does a number of things. First off, he relies upon himself. You see that in verses 4 through 6. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with having means or know-how or being resourceful in our lives. There's nothing wrong with that. God gives us such a thing called the dignity of causality. We know that God is in control of absolutely everything. We know that he is orchestrating everything. We know that he is our ultimate provider, and he's given us provision, and he's given us means, right, to steward, to live a faithful life and a responsible life. 
So if our kid gets sick, God has blessed us with insurance. God has blessed us with doctors. God has blessed us with a hospital. Take you know, ownership of stewardship of those things. That's good. Give God thanks for it. But it's clear that Naaman went beyond that. Right? He, 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 he started relying on these means. He started trying to take control of the situation like we often do. And we know that for a number of reasons. One, he never once prayed. We're supposed to pray to God in all things, but Naaman not once prayed. He never once gave God thanks for these things which God had given him. And he never once sought God's will, ever. What did he do? The bub starts name dropping. He starts throwing around his clout, throwing around his, his purse. That's what he starts doing. He starts trying to show everybody who he is. Oh, this little slave girl tells me that there's this weirdo prophet in Israel that can, that can save me. Well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Israel. I'm not going to talk to this prophet. I'm going to go to the guy at the top of the ladder, the most important person in Israel, the king, because that's who I deal with. And I'm going to tell that smarmy little king that there's a more important king, and this king's in Syria, and that king commands him to heal me. So here's your money. Fix me. Chop, chop. That's what he did. There was no humility there. He was under the illusion that he could procure blessing. And he starts throwing around his clout. This is what Keller comments on that, on that passage. He says, one of the ways that we can tell that we struggle with the idol of control is because it gives us a false sense of security, which comes from deifying our achievements and resources and expecting those things to keep us safe from the troubles of life in a way that only God can. So here's Naaman, he thinks he's in control of everything, he has all these resources, and he thinks that those things are the means of his salvation. Those things are the means of blessing. Those things are going to save from things that only God can. You see, it just didn't, it didn't fit Naaman's worldview that he was or needed to be dependent upon God for everything. It just didn't. And it doesn't fit our culture's worldview either, Right? Because as men, we're supposed to be in charge. We're supposed to be successful. We're supposed to pull ourselves up by the bootstrap. We're supposed to be able to lean on ourselves. That's what Naaman did. Another thing that he did in verse 7, he tried to manipulate God. You see, Naaman and the king of Syria thought religion operated in Israel just like it operates everywhere else, just like it operates in our own culture. That if you're a good enough person, God's going to bless you. And therefore, it was easy for Naaman to fall into that, right? Because he was already a blessed person. And therefore, it was easy for him to think, well, I already have God's favor. I mean, my life has been awesome up to this point. Clearly, God likes me. God is going to do whatever I ask him to do. Have you ever been in that, that position before? Like, I'm a pretty good guy, right? So God's going to really help me out here. That's what Naaman was doing. He was twisting the knobs, he was trying to show God how great he was, reminding God, hey, I'm not supposed to get leprosy. I'm your guy. And clearly I'm a guy because you've been blessing me my whole life. I got all these things. And that's why, that's why the king of Israel got so enraged. He's like, who do you think you are? You think you can, you think you can put Yahweh on a leash? You think you control the good but, but untamable lion? You think that's how powerful you are? You think you can do that? You think you have him in your back pocket? You think that he's in your debt? 
That's why he ripped his vestments. How often do we feel like we could put God in our debt? I think that's why sometimes we're so shocked by suffering in our life because we feel like good people, favored people by God don't suffer. But brothers, listen, to being a disciple of Christ, we don't manipulate Jesus out of suffering. We just trust Christ in it, the one who went before us in suffering. As those who are after God's own heart, we don't rely upon ourselves, but we depend upon the one, our Father in heaven, who loves us more than we could ever possibly imagine. That's good and has us in his hands. We are not like Naaman. Most of us in this room, I'm willing to believe, are already believers. Most of us in this room don't have a terminal prognosis, I would think. But we're all men. And we all face enormous pressure in this life to lead and provide not only for ourselves, but for others. And because of that, we will worry. And oftentimes, to counteract that worry, we act out in foolish ways that make the matters worse than they were before we started. And sometimes it just feels like it's killing us, trying to be in control. That's why I love the Gospel of Matthew in our study last semester, particularly Matthew 6, where Jesus gives us the antidote to worry, the antidote to the illusion of control, and shows us how we live as men after God's own heart in an uncertain world. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He's not kidding when he says that. You know, I tell, Sarah often tells me, baby, don't be anxious, you're going to be okay. I'm like, okay, whatever. You, you know nothing. She knows more than she says. But this is God commanding us not to be anxious. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither snow, uh, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father, description, heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into an oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you little of faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Then Paul's equivalent passage in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And get this, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Brothers, the point is that God is not indifferent to any one of you. And he knows your needs and he knows your concerns more than you do. You are not an orphan. You're an adopted child of the Heavenly Father who loves you more than you could ever possibly know. And what Jesus is saying in that passage is stop worrying about the things that you're not in control of anyway. But just seek God. 
and seek the things of God and trust that he who did not spare me will graciously give you all things that you need to get you home. Brothers, we do not need to be in control because God is. And he is good. And he has you in his hands. That's good news. So we see, we see that. And thirdly, we see um, this idol being exposed in Naaman's life. That's the next progression that we see. Finally, his idol is becoming exposed. And we can learn some things here. If you look at this passage in verses 8 through 13, uh, when this idol gets exposed, what happens to Naaman is what happens to every single one of us when, when our idols get exposed. First off, we become hurt, and then we get angry. And that's just normal. When God's doing heart surgery on us and, and pricks our consciences, of course we're going to be hurt, and of course we're going to be angry. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That just shows that the medicine is taking effect. But look at verses 8 through 13. It's kind of a hilarious situation. Uh, Naaman finally shows up on Elisha's doorstep with all of the pomp and all of the fanfare. He's got chariots and all of the stuff that he thinks are impressive that he's been putting stock in. But then you have Elisha who could give a rip. I mean, the guy doesn't even come out of his shack. All right, he's like, a, he's like a, this backwoods prophet. I mean, he's thinking to himself, who is this city slicker coming here with all these shiny horses? This isn't a big deal to me. And so what does he do? He sends out his servant. And that just, that really ruffled uh, Naaman's feathers. I mean, that just really poked his pride, right? Because he's being shown inch by inch that he's not as important as he thinks he is, right? He, he wanted, first off, to see the king of Israel, but no longer... Is that a possibility? Now he wants to sing the prophet of Israel, but he doesn't see the prophet. Now he sees a servant. God is cutting him down to size. He's chipping away at this idol. Now what really cooks his bacon is the messenger, uh, his message. This guy comes out, you know, probably in a servant's clothing. This person that Naaman wouldn't even have turned his nose at. And he says, Naaman, you look really sick. Here's what my guy tells me to do. He wants you to jump in that river Dip yourselves seven times, wash, and that's it. And Naaman got so angry. We are told that he was actually enraged by that. You want me to do what? I thought you were going to do some sort of elaborate, you know, magic trick or something. But you want me to jump into that dirty river? If, if all that I needed to do was jump in that river, I got two beautiful rivers in my hometown. You want me to jump in that river? Can you imagine if you're a bystander how nasty that would have been? Uh, Elisha, we wash our dishes. You want a leper to jump into that river right there? Very disgusting. But it's even more disgusting to Naaman. He was cut to the core. So just think about that. Isn't that good news? If we were in our right mind, that would be great news. You have this death sentence that's taken off of you by merely skinny dipping in the Jordan River. I mean, he's free from a horrific death by simply jumping in this river, but that was the worst news to him. Why, why was something so easy, so difficult for Naaman? It's because his worldview, brothers, did not allow for grace. It just didn't. Because grace implies that you are not in control. And those who need to be in control hate the idea of grace because it means you can't earn it and you can't achieve it. Naaman finally was confronted by a God who is good but could not be controlled, whose salvation and favor and blessing could not be earned, could not be achieved. It was simply needed to be received. And perhaps for the very first time, Naaman 
realized that all of the blessings he was enjoying, the security and the power, perhaps those had been blessings from God the whole, the whole time. Perhaps he realized for the very first time that he had always been dependent upon God and just chosen not to see it, but now it, made, it was made painfully aware to him. I don't know what, what was going through his mind, but what is clear is that his idol of control was exposed and he was awakened to the reality that he was weak and that he was helpless and that he desperately needed God. And I do know that that's hard to swallow sometimes. I know that theologically and everybody in this room, yeah, I need God. But in our environment to admit that we are helpless people, that we are weaklings, that we're men, but we're weaklings and that we're helpless and that we're 100% dependent upon God, that's hard. Again, Keller says that if we want grace, all we need is need. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard for us to muster as it was for Naaman. So the question is, how do we let go of this idol of ours? How do we let go of any of our idols? How do we stop trying to control our environment, control the lives of other people, even God? How do we take up a posture like the Apostle Paul who was content and said, your grace is more than sufficient for me? Wouldn't you love to be in a place where you could really mean that? How do we get to be men after God's own heart who quit trying to rely upon ourselves and our own resources and look to God. How do we do that? The answer is simple as it always is, brothers. We must turn our eyes upon Christ. And that's what we see in verse 14 when, when Naaman's idol is replaced. In verse 14, Naaman finally jumps into that river. And the very next thing that we see happen is that he's healed. It's just, it's just, just half a phrase. He's healed. He's clean. He has the skin of a child. Just remember where he was. This man's life came crashing down. He had this horrific death sentence on his head and he jumps into a river and that's it and he's healed. And what does he do after that? He worships God. It's funny, he didn't even know how to worship God, right? Because he's never met God before. Elisha had to tell him how to worship God, but he worships God. He says, truly, there is no other God but the God of Israel. You have done this. And with a heart of thanksgiving, he, he worships him. But I want you to notice something. Notice that Naaman, in order to free himself from this idol, didn't slap himself around. He didn't try harder. He didn't read more books to try to figure this thing out. We cannot free ourselves from whatever our idol is by mere strength, brothers. We have to have it replaced by something more beautiful, more grand than whatever that idol is. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we see that take place in Naaman's life. Naaman was told if he was going to be cured or healed, several things had to happen. First off, he had to receive the word of salvation through a servant girl. And then he had to receive it once more through Elisha's lowly servant. And then he had to receive the rebuke and the encouragement from his own servants. And then he jumped into that river. You see that the message of salvation does not come from the rich, the mighty, or the powerful. It comes from the lowly. And the ultimate picture we see it in the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who willingly became a servant the one who willingly became dependent upon his mother in childhood, the one who formed stars, became dependent as a little baby, 
the one who was dependent upon his father's will his entire life, and the one who was dependent upon that cross with his limbs stretched and nailed. And he did that for you. John Stott says, not only does Jesus dignify dependency, it's through his own dependency he saves men like us. Brothers, that's the key. You set your eyes upon Christ and you remind yourself of what he has done for you. And as you do, you understand why God's blessing and God's favor and God's salvation does not require you to be great or to do anything great because he's done it all. And once you believe that and grab a hold of it, you're able to jump into his river of grace, just like Naaman. Brothers, this is a story about conversion. And it's encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you, but there's a lot we can learn here. Our culture tells us, as men, we have to be the best. Our schools tell our kids they have to be at the top of the ladder. We have to have everything together. But if we're honest with that, that is like a weight around our necks dragging us down because those are impossible expectations. Here's the good news of the Bible. Your designer, your creator tells you that to be a man after his own heart, to be successful in the truest sense, it's not about having everything in the palm of your hand. It's not about becoming independent. It's not about achieving this, that, or the other. It's about becoming more and more aware of your dependency upon him in everything and for everything. And brothers, I guarantee you, as we come to grips with that, we will experience, as Paul says, the peace of God which surpasses all human comprehension. We will thrive as the men that God designed us to be. And we will experience his joy. I'm reminded of one of C.S. Lewis's stories, uh, the Prince Caspian. Some of y'all may have read that to your kids or grandkids recently. But there's, um, there's a little section in that book where Lucy, little girl Lucy, she hadn't seen uh, the lion, Aslan, who's the Christ-like figure in quite some time, but she comes across Aslan. And she goes, my, Aslan, you've gotten bigger. And this is what Aslan says. He goes, nope, that's because you're older, little one. And Lucy says, it's not because you're older? And Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The theological point that Lewis was making is that as we grow in faith, brothers, our vision becomes clearer and we are reminded of how truly big God is. If we want to be the men, the husbands, the fathers, the sons, the leaders, the employees that God wants us to be, we have to set our eyes upon Christ. And here's just two easy ways to do that. Pray. As Paul said in that Philippians 4, take everything to his throne and remind yourself of his power and his provision and his promises and abide in Christ. Which is another way of saying, study your Bibles and fill your imaginations of the beauty and the love and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you, as you do, you will find that he is the only one that is worthy of your dependence. And just like, you know, little Lucy perhaps we'll grow an understanding of how powerful and able and safe our God really is. Turn your eyes upon him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my brothers.
We are sinners in need of grace, which you offer us freely in Christ. Help us to remember, O God, that you created us, that you designed us, that you loved us before the foundation of the world. Help us to always remember, Christ, that you have accomplished everything that we needed to accomplish. And and help us to remember, Holy Spirit, that you're with us now, applying the work of redemption in our hearts, going for us, and making us more like Jesus. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in your blessed name. Amen.